If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn in them with me this morning to the book of Judges. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the passage for today should be on the insert found in your bulletin, and there is, uh, there are some Bibles on the back table, which I'd invite you to grab and follow along. Chapter 15 is where we are this morning. This is our 13th week in what looks like it's going to be a 15-week study of the book of Judges. So those of you who are quick on the math have already figured out that after this week, we have just two more weeks in our study of this book. Currently, we are in the middle of the story of Samson. Samson is the last judge. I guess I better get there. The last judge in uh, this time period that we're studying in the life of God's people. His story, remember, is one that began with a supernatural announcement and one that uh, began with great expectancy, but one that also began to plunge downward very quickly. As we were reminded two weeks ago, we were reminded that Yahweh powerfully works His will through imperfect and impulsive vessels such as Samson. I mean, there's no doubt that the Scriptures extol Samson as a hero. He was a hero of the faith, but he was an imperfect hero. He was a man of faith in Yahweh, but his faith was a flawed faith. And I've said that again and again, but it ought to be said again and again because I don't know about you, but it's an encouragement to me, it's an encouragement to my heart that that fact, that reality assures us and encourages us in our weakness, in our inadequacy, in serving the Lord, in following Him faithfully. This morning as we return to the exploits of Samson, we return to a a story that is more than just a biographical sketch of an extraordinary man, though it may be that. It's a passage that once again, as as God's Word so often does, shows us again who God is and how He works, and it reminds us of who we are. It shows us ourselves. God's Word has a wonderful way of doing that. And so if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word Out of honor for His Word, I'm going to start with the last verse of chapter 14, verse 20, and then I'll read through the entirety of chapter 15. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with the young goats. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to him, to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And so Samson went 
and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. And he set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put it in his hand, and he took it, and he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called En-Hakor, as it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Isn't the book of Judges fun? (laughs) Two exhortations that I want us to consider from this portion of God's Word this morning. And the first one is this. Rejoice in the outrageous story of God's salvation. Rejoice in the outrageous, astonishing, surprising story of God's salvation. And when I say rejoice, I mean take pleasure in delight in, revel in, relish and savor, enjoy the victories of our God. Do you remember when God's people were rescued out of the land of Egypt and they were led through the Red Sea 
and the Egyptians followed them, and the Lord closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians. Do you remember what the, the Israelites did right after that? They sang. They sang the song of Moses, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Something like what we have this morning, I think. Guilty pleasures. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Do you know even what a guilty pleasure is? A guilty pleasure is something that one enjoys despite feeling that it's generally not held in high regard, that enjoyment, right? And so, here's some examples of guilty pleasures I found. Staying in your pajamas all day, it's a guilty pleasure. Eating cereal for dinner, a guilty pleasure. Squirting easy cheese directly into your mouth, that's a guilty pleasure. Listening to Barry Manilow, now there's a guilty pleasure. I suppose at the end of the day, guilty pleasures really only matter if you care what other people think of you and if those very people don't do those things themselves. Well, why do I bring this up? Because I think this passage, this is a passage that could be perceived by some as a Jewish guilty pleasure. You thought last week's passage was crazy, and it was crazy. But then we read this, foxes on fire and the jawbone of a dead donkey. And why? Why? Well, here's what we can't forget. For the salvation of God's people. That's why these crazy things are happening. You see, despite all of Samson's missteps, despite all of Samson's impulsiveness and sin, the Lord is using him. The Lord is using Samson to wreak havoc on the Philistines, on the enemies of God's people. And the havoc that he's wreaking, the salvation that he is accomplishing, is the most memorable and colorful kind. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, remember this, revel in this. There need not be any guilty pleasure here. Our story begins as we pick up the events of two weeks ago. Let me hash through some of what we just read. Samson's own wedding feast from two weeks ago when we looked at that. Samson's own wedding feast and celebration had been interrupted. It had been interrupted when he lost a bet, a bet that he himself created by coming up with a riddle at his party. He, of course, wasn't happy about losing his bet, particularly because those who won the bet cheated in order to win it by getting his wife to tell them the answer. But Samson, needing to pay back that bet, goes to the city of Ashkelon, and there he takes down 30 Philistines in Ashkelon so that he can take their clothes and return those clothes to fulfill the terms of his bet. Crazy stuff. After all of that activity, out of all of that impulsiveness, 
Samson goes back to his dad's house to cool down. Now, we don't know how long Samson was there. The Bible doesn't tell us how long he was at his father's house, just that he was there, and after some days, he came back. He came back with a goat. He came back not with flowers and chocolate, but he came back with a goat to make amends with his wife. See, men, you were doing it all wrong all these days. Flowers and chocolate, you need a goat. This is the ancient Near East, after all. So he comes with a goat, and he meets his father-in-law, and his father-in-law says, no, she's not yours anymore. I've given her away to another. I thought that you didn't want her. You left in a huff. Well, there goes the cool down. We've already learned Samson to be impulsive, to be angry, and so now the gloves are coming off once again. And interestingly enough, he doesn't blame his father-in-law. He blames the rest of the Philistines. And to get his revenge in this wildly creative move, one that was not approved by PETA, I guarantee it, he ties foxes together or jackals, we're not sure which one, and knowing that their confusion at being tied together would create this erratic movement in the fields of the Philistines, they scatter all over the place. And the Philistines' fields for grain, their olive trees for oil are devastated. This was a huge loss. A huge loss. And they're angry. And so they take it out on his father-in-law on his former wife. And of course, this makes matters even worse. As he strikes them, the Bible says here, with hip and thigh. It's a Hebrew idiom that we don't know exactly know what the meaning of it is in verse 8 I'm looking at. The assumption is that he left them in a pile. It's an outrageous defeat. Samson is on a rampage. He's angry. He's seeking revenge. And then it happens again soon after. We jump down to verse 14. We'll return to how he got to verse 14 in just a moment. But for now, look at verse 14. Samson finds himself in the presence of a thousand shouting, angry Philistines. And he came to bound to them as a prisoner of war. But the power of God through his spirit quickly makes him a free man. And he's free to grab an unorthodox weapon. He grabs a, freshly, uh, a fresh jawbone from a dead donkey. Yes, he violates his Nazarite vow again by coming into contact with the corpse and he pummels God's enemy. It's another incredibly playful story. A memorable story. And even ends it with poetry. Verse 16, the Hebrew isn't exactly recognizable, but there's there's a play on words here in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word for donkey and heap are the same. And so I was reading, and there's one translator that helps us kind of get the grasp of some of the playfulness even in this poem. Basically, he's saying, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. 
probably a, a lyric that's not great for our hymnity, uh, which is why it's not in any of the psalms that we sing, but nevertheless, it celebrates what God is doing through Samson. Remember verse 4 of chapter 14? Look back with me there real quick. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, we talked about that, Yahweh was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. You see, Yahweh is at work in all of this. And the work that he's doing through the impulsive anger of Samson is he's stirring things up. He's accomplishing what Israel will not do on their own. Go after their enemies. And this is not because Yahweh is violent at heart. No, it's because Yahweh is jealous for his people. He's jealous for their good. He's jealous that they be set apart, that they be protected from the nations around them, from the destructive path, uh, from the destructive path uh, practices of the nations around them. And so through this impulsive, one-man wrecking crew, Yahweh is beginning to do just that. Thirty Philistines are dead in Ashkelon. The agricultural industry of the Philistine nation, or at least a large part of it, has been devastated and probably ruined for years to come. And now, another thousand men have been slaughtered, put into a heap, and that place has been named Jawbone Hill. You see, as I've studied this, this past week, I've had to ask myself, as you probably have asked yourself as you've read this, why? I mean, why accomplish things in this way? Right? I mean, if Yahweh wanted to, he could have just raised up an army to bring about a straightforward conflict, or he could have used a, a less colorful individual committed to a more traditional approach, but he doesn't. He didn't. Instead, he gave us these rich, crazy stories. Instead, we have this vivid, memorable, almost mocking methodology that frankly is amusing. Yes, it's, it's violent. It's devastating. But remember, these are God's enemies. So put yourselves into the shoes of a young Jewish boy or girl who a hundred years later is hearing this story passed down to him. You'd remember this. And you'd enjoy it. You'd rejoice in God's powerful work, in His outrageous salvation. It brings to mind Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take, them, take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed one. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see, through the, the bursted 
busted bonds of his servant Samson. Yahweh is putting the world on notice that he's not one to be messed with. He's not one to be reckoned with. And any attempt to overthrow him, well, the joke will be on you. Delight in the outrageous story of God's salvation. But this whole episode brings something else to mind. Or more specifically, brings someone else to mind. Because another man will come without an army, working alone, His birth, too, will be announced by an angel. He, too, will be set apart for God's work. He, too, will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. He, too, will wreak havoc on God's enemies. He, too, will allow His own people to bind Him and hand Him over to their enemies. But rather than breaking those bonds in impulsive, angry revenge, the Lord Jesus allows those bonds to become bonds of love. And He remains bound by them for you and for me. The victory will still be His, but not through violence done to others, but through allowing violence to be done to Him once for all. And so indeed, Psalm 2, where we just read, the nations plot in vain, the Lord laughs. How does that psalm end in verse 6? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so yes, this passage, I think, is encouraging us to delight in the outrageous salvation of God, but it's also encouraging us to look forward to what is coming, us here looking back to what has come, the greater Samson has come. And that terrible sacrifice, that terrible suffering is our greatest joy. Even as Samson cried to the Lord for refreshment at the end of our passage and water is given to him, so at the end of Psalm 110, one of the most quoted messianic psalms in the New Testament, it says this, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Brothers and sisters, this is an invitation for us to delight in the powerful, unexpected, outrageous story of God's salvation, both here in the story of Samson and fast forward to the story of Jesus. Celebrating Samson is no guilty pleasure, nor is celebrating the horror of the cross Do you ever put your unbelieving ears, your neighbor's unbelieving ears and eyes on when when you think about some of the songs that we sing? 
about blood and about death, about an innocent one hanging on a cross. And yet it's God's salvation. And it's our hope and joy. Paul expressed to the Roman church in Romans 16.20, the God of peace, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under his feet. He says that to inspire the church. The God of peace will come to crush. Revelation 19 is is another picture. I just want to read it to us. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Rejoice in the salvation of God's people. That's the first thing I think that this passage invites us to do. But there's one more challenge I'd like us to briefly consider in verses 9 through 13, that passage that we skipped. Let me state the encouragement and then explain The second truth is this, fight being content with the American dream. Fight being content with the American dream. Now what is the American dream? Well, Wikipedia, the authority on all things, right, says, The American dream is a national ethos of the United States, the set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, as well as an upward social mobility for the family and children achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. And so practically speaking, in so many of our lives, the American dream looks like material prosperity. It looks like peace. It looks like comfort and security for us and for our children, two cars, two kids, a nice house, a good job, an early retirement. That's what we want. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things in and of themselves are bad things. But you're thinking, what does the American dream have to do with the book of Judges and the story of Samson? Well, the short answer is one word, lethargy. 
Getting back to our story, after angering the Philistines, they come for him. The Philistines come for Samson. And they meet the men of Judah as they come seeking, where are you, Samson? They come face to face, these men of Judah. They come face to face with their enemies, with their oppressors. And they ask their enemies, why have you come up against us? And their subsequent statement to Samson is even more telling. Do you not know, Samson, that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done? And we say, "Mm, men of Judah, these are your enemies. The Philistines are your enemies. These are the pagans that you're supposed to be clearing out of your land. But these men have lost all sense of mission. They're content with their bondage. They're content with the status quo. And here is Samson. Samson's rocking the boat. He's upsetting the apple cart. And the men of Judah, the people of Israel, they're not happy. You would think, you would think that Samson's kin having seen the havoc that he has wreaked on their enemies, on their oppressors, on those who rule over them. As they've seen the power of Yahweh's Spirit on Yahweh's man, you would think that they might declare, this is the Lord's man. Maybe we ought to get behind him. They've mustered up 3,000 men. Ten times the amount of men that the Lord gave Gideon to take his enemies. 3,000 men to capture one man. Not to join arms with him, but to capture him, to bind him. And they don't even have the backbone to kill him themselves. They're just going to hand him over to a thousand Philistines. I'm not great at math, but 3,000 Israelites versus a thousand Philistines. And, and God's man with the Spirit of God. But they don't even think about doing what God has called them to do. About joining Samson in this work of salvation. Do you see the problem? They had completely forgotten that they were supposed to be at war. They had completely assimilated into the world around them and they were essentially apathetic to the things of the Lord. They were called to be different. They were called to be set apart. And yet they were just blending in. Their struggle is our struggle as well. We live in a beautiful, wonderful country. We can worship God without taunt, without persecution. We live in unparalleled comfort and ease and security. 
how easily we can be lulled to complacency. You see, I think Judges 15 is a reminder that sometimes we need to be awakened from our idolatry of the frivolous things of this world around us and and, and be reminded that this is not our home. Maybe we need to be disturbed a little bit more. Maybe we need more of a holy hatred than we have at times. Yes, our situation in the new covenant is entirely different. Our war is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, Paul says in the book of Ephesians. But we forget sometimes still that we are at war. That this is not our home. That politics is not our hope. Policies are not our hope. We are exiles. We are aliens. Two cars, two kids, a gift from God, absolutely. No guilt in enjoying those things. But brothers and sisters, don't be content with that. There's more. You and I are new creations. We have renewed minds. We have different priorities. We're not to settle for the status quo, but to live a different life. And we're living in a cultural moment where it's not as easy as it once was to be a Christian. And I think that's going to be increasingly the case for this next generation of our children But you know what? Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe the Lord in His grace is stirring His people. Now, I don't know what this specifically looks like in in your lives, but I pray for the wisdom, for the leading of His Spirit to show you, to remove the blinders if they're there to stir you. To stirring that begins with remembering and rejoicing in God's outrageous salvation and continues through the fight against the American status quo. I want to close with a quote that I think brings these two realities together. It's from a book called Strange Days by Mark Sayers, kind of a cultural, Christian cultural commentator. He says this, The church in our strange days needs to be embedded in the soil in which it finds itself, speaking the local language and reflecting its community. Yet it cannot give in to its community's myths, most pressingly the myth of the self as God. A life lived as a disciple, born out of God's grand narrative, shaped within the people of God, fighting the flesh, is a powerfully magnetic force. Freed from being a slave to the elemental forces, standing firm as to not return to them. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in God's extraordinary, outrageous salvation and fight 
fight against complacency. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for so great a salvation, for such a memorable salvation. Father, we thank you most of all for the greater Samson who came and will come again. Until that day, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be exiles in this land, that you would transform us by your grace, that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.